0: Must speak the truth about terror let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories <laughs> malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves <laughs> <laughs> what happens i tell you what happens Bam! i have a window that looks directly at the world trade center and i saw no delusion Shit's get way too complicated for me yeah. welcome to the antidote this is greg mccann
1: and this is jeremy rothgar
0: show so uh, today we're going to be. Um, yes, we just here in the United States it's January 18th, and yes, yesterday was the um, annual anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and this year, of course, we just passed the what would have been his 93rd birthday on January 15th. So um, with that in mind, we're going to go back and um, and read from varying sources um, elements related to the uh, to the King assassination. Some things we have discussed before, some things we haven't, and then we're also going to tie this back to um, elements of the uh, surrounding the assassination of uh, President John F. Kennedy. So, I'm going to do that here. But um, just before we get started with that, I just wanted to mention that we have upcoming, and um, we just published uh, our show about Merrick Garland, centered around Merrick Garland and his uh, with the. January 6th investigation but also going back to Oklahoma City. We're actually going to be putting together a a series. Um, you know, we've done series in the past from 9/11 to 11/9 and um the five parts series we just did on de- that we titled deconstructing uh, the Kennedy assassination. We're going to be going into Oklahoma City and tying it together with um with the January 6th and bringing those things together and it'll be even a conversation that even goes beyond that, but really zeroing in on Oklahoma city and some facets of some, uh, some aspects of the Oklahoma city investigation that we feel are important that really haven't gain, gotten a lot of traction and bringing that out. And it's kind of painting a picture between that and events that are ongoing to, to right now. So i uh, we're not sure how long that's going to take or how many parts it will be, but that is coming. So uh, definitely, um, we hope that uh, all of you will be looking forward to that as um, we could go several parts on this.
1: Yeah. And I imagine it'll be the, the title will be in the realm of something like from January 6th or from 1 6th to OKC and back. And that will be part of the way that we'll frame it. There'll be the, a lot of focus on missing forensic pieces, what it means about what actually potentially happened on those days and potentially who had motive and uh, means motive opportunity to all do it, let's say. But also really we're going to focus a lot on the not only the cover-up of it, but also the red herrings and the attempted abuse by, we might even say, the exact same network then and now uh, surrounding the the inquiry into it and why it's important. So we're going to be pointing out that there was massive cover-ups that the actual individual figure of Merrick Garland would have been involved in back then and is then, we're asserting, is involved in uh, right now. And... And so that will be the epicenter of it. And we've been talking about since the rise of the Biden administration, especially right after January 6th of last year of 2021, we begin to think that this question of Oklahoma City was crucial, especially in relationship to Garland being put in as attorney general. And we're now... Prepared forensically to put forth a bit of our case, I think, is the way that we are are looking at it. And so today, like you described, Greg, we want to fill in some gaps in terms of the tissue that very likely connects the operative perpetrators and some of the motive of, again, who all... <laughs> was involved in the assassinations of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. And once again, some of the threads that have covered up are very sim- similar kinds of networks all the way up through, we might say, Oklahoma City and aspects of this January 6th uh, operation, which was an emanation, obviously, also of the deeper id, the political, core political id of what was going on behind the 11 Trump operation ultimately too. Uh, but then also what the cover-ups can, can tell us about who's pointing, distracting fingers in the wrong direction, we might say, and how there's a very uh, similar kind of construction even back to this MLK, JFK uh, connection and some people may say, "Well, well, w- that we here at the antidote we obsess too much on only on, for example, on days like Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday, which is represents his birth, that we focus too much on his death, let's say, or that we focus too much on the death of Kennedy." But this is one of the reasons why you know, first of all, it's the core to our our mission is that we deal with deep politics. And deep politics are in in most intensely in relationship to these events, where something is disrupted, such as someone a a a, a political leader, whether elected office or a community organic civil rights leader. In the case of King, uh, those lives are ended, and that there's something that those events are not only an attack on that individual or their potential. Work of their life, but they are also representative of the the trauma based mind control against we the people and our body politic. And so there is a way that we there we have to bind we have to bind we have to bind these kinds of forces that uh, that engage in this in order for there to be uh, the organic. What well, well, I'll speak for myself that I I have a, a lot of faith in we the people. I believe in democracy. I believe in uh, a Republican rule of law in terms of the protection via proper, legitimate rule of law of the rights of the minority, whether it's a racial minority, a religious minority, a political minority. And that these, I have faith in we, the people, that if we have, in this case, I believe in the idea of the what the crucial rights protected under the First Amendment, especially things like uh, freedom of conscience, which is portrayed as freedom of religion, which is really crucial, but also freedom of speech, press, assembly, right? That those are crucial here, and so that's where we're working on is to potentially use an uncovering and a uh, beginning to recohere the facts of our history in a way that we can understand the truth of who did what and why, so that we may be able to clear a space so that we, the people can actually determine our own future. And rather than having a body politic that's being consistently tortured and then being gaslit over decades and decades and decades of no, no one ever tortured you. No one ever, you know, killed, killed your president. No one ever killed your, your one of your leading, uh, you know, Christian African-American civil rights leaders, all, all of those kinds of things are, are gaslighting. And so now it's, begin, it's beginning to become clear that these whole series of these assassinations, the big terrorist events, these big uh, deep election events, these things such as the uh, January 6th, the insurrection that these are staged at a very high level by very powerful networks, and then covered up by very powerful networks, and and often it's framed as uh, horseshoes of dialectics of this side and that side, and you know Merrick Garland is going to get to the bottom of what uh, the Donald Trump people did, and all the, those kinds of things. But in the in the radical middle is the truth of the matter. And it transcends these manufactured dialectics. But we can only get there if we really begin to dig up the missing pieces in order to have a coherent uh, picture of what actually went on. And so that's why we focus on these deep events that, that it, rather than necessarily uh, a, a bunch of focus on the the lives of an individual or the policy but we we also pay attention to that as we pointed out in terms of our our five part series on the Kennedy assassination that that the reason just pointing out that the reason that these assassinations are important is to also point out well what were the these people actually doing what were what were they representative in terms of these larger uh movements of we the people and our uh o- organic uh movement for for uh for reclaiming our own our own rights and uh, improving our own uh, uh, society, really, and uh, so the, I just wanted to explain that uh, in case that was not clear for folks.
0: Yeah, very well said, and i i I second that. And the thing about this is that um, it is absolutely it is. I think an attack on your society um, in general when you have these events that are unexplained that are covered up to such a such a scale. I mean, especially when you consider um, the consequence. I think long term of these assassinations. We talked about the assassinations of the 60s with the um, particularly the Kennedy brothers, King, Malcolm X, and they're being very I would say um, extensive and pretty uh, clear cover-ups behind all of these events. And uh, and I guess the thing also about life versus death is we can take a critical look at policies that were in play or things that were being advocated for, pushed for, or areas and agendas that could be considered a threat to organized interests of power um, at pretty significant levels. And that can be done without, um, while also realizing in terms of the lives of these people that um, these are not. You know, there's a, these are. I don't know. is the right word. These are very nuanced figures because if you look at a, honestly speaking, if you look at a critical evaluation of, say, the Kennedy brothers or Martin Luther King, out with the outside of like aspects of what you might call a sanitized uh, narrative. I think with the Kennedys, there's like this sanitized well acceptable version of like the youthful the youthful young kennedys who are going to be like the royal family of america with their new energy and all this like the american camelot which has been used as like to uphold like this um establishment friendly narrative about the kennedys but it's also been used i think in potentially in bad faith to attack uh the kennedys and deflect questions away from their assassinations from people who do have um who do have uh a lot of traction within elements, which you might call the alternative media. I'm thinking maybe you're Noam Chomsky, Seymour Hersh types perhaps, and others. But, um, but, and then obviously with King, there's a very sanitized historical version around like the establishment friendly, mainstream friendly narrative of like the sanitized, that civil rights movement, which of course uh, we've talked about before where that leaves out a lot of aspects of things that still continue on to this day under the guise of... um, You know, we America moved past its legacy of bigotry and all this, and is now this um because of the the sanitized version that like your politicians and media representatives will push all the time. But we gotta remember that um in terms of the lies, like this very complicated. It's not all easy. Like that's the case where I think a lot of people will either try to go in one direction, overtly positive or overtly negative. And so in the context of the lives of these people, I mean it's very complicated. It's not easy to talk about like the, the legacy because you will find things that contradict the idea that people might have of like overtly morally virtuous people in terms of their um, terms of their lives outside of like politics or what we know about them in terms of their Time in politics, their time in activism, but when we look at the commonalities of the actual, um, the events, which you know the of their assassinations and aspects and networks surrounding it and around it, then you know we can move away outside, regardless of like the complicated legacies of these people in terms of their lives, their moral lives, aspects of uh, how they lived, and then you can see, regardless of all that, we can get to answering the questions of what happened and why, why was it done? Who did it? And what are the consequences that we continue to um, see from this that go on to this day, I think in all of these cases. And so it, I think focusing on like, the then you can tie together a, I think a fair, more fair assessment of the compli- of these complicated nuanced individuals and their lives with bringing a sense of accountability and truth to their demises and what they mean and what they symbolize and why organized power interests would have such a vested stake in continuing to run cover for these events and not be honest with the people about what happened and why.
1: Crucial point, Greg. And I appreciate you for, for, um, contributing that piece because that is also, a uh, part of why I would say that what we're doing here is focusing on what could be called the core political content. So we're not really interested in the either the idolatry of individuals or the anti-idolatry I a, aka the villainizing of of individuals uh, either in terms of their their private life or in terms of sort of seeing them as, These unabashed sort of public saints or public devils of of some sort. And so that really, you know, I think that we're really much more focused on the core political, the questions of, uh, of rule of law, the questions of democracy, the questions of geopolitical interests. And ultimately the interests of we the people, if we could talk about that, the national interests of we the people, wherever we may be, whichever nation we may be in. And so that's that is really the the core of our organizing philosophy, I think. and so I, I appreciate you pointing out that we are not we don't we're not interested in engaging in the political or personal idolatry or anti-idolatry really, and that we're much more interested in the core political facts of the matter, that which is relevant to all of us rather than that which may be relevant to a certain faction or certain individuals, or at its worst case, it becomes like a sort of political pornography or gossip of some sort. So we're much more, and and that can happen in terms of like, we've talked about this too, that you can get obsessed then with the minutia of the, in the what of scenarios, that becomes conspiracy pornography, where it becomes sort of the we, of where it's every single last, you know, intriguing, entertaining detail and all of that. And we're not, that's not us. You know, it's, some of that is important in terms of journalism, obviously, because the details do matter. But really, you know, you could spend endless time on a single event, for example. And maybe it's good that some people do that in order to really totally excavate that one event. But as we've seen, it, it looks like there are not, you can't point to a single event that matters and then point to a single individual to say, oh, that person actually got the whole thing right. So I would just say that's evidence that maybe that's not the right approach. That we should all should be a little bit more uh, you know, macro kind of vision, a macro analysis, and that we know enough about the forensics and the details of, of uh, events uh, and uh, movements and arcs of history that matter. But we don't get obsessed with all of the all of the details. We know enough, and we check it out, and we make sure that we are, our facts are. Uh, checking out and coherent but then we move towards you know through the the uh in, through the idea of grammar logic and rhetoric because rhetoric ultimately is the case of a political uh political public engagement towards actually creating something towards doing something towards uh, figuring out what we what then do we do and uh so All right. Well, thank you very much, Greg, for for, uh, filling that in. I really appreciate that because I'd I'd forgotten about that key piece of what we've talked about.
0: For sure. For sure.
1: Okay, we're going to start out with uh, reading. We're just going to read the whole article, actually, titled The Plot to Kill Martin Luther King Jr., A Conspiracy Fact. This was published at the Community Voice Kansas, which is at communityvoiceks.com. This was originally published January eleventh of twenty nineteen, and it says it's been updated just in the last weeks, uh, January seventh, twenty twenty two, and it starts out with a picture with uh, with King. I believe that's Ralph Abernathy. I think to his right, and then Jesse Jackson to his left, and there's a target on on King's head. All right, quote. People who believe in conspiracy theories are kooks and crazies, aren't they? If that's the case, add to the list of crazies, the King family, Ralph Abernathy, and other civil rights leaders of the 60s, and attorney William Pepper. Pepper is the author of three books on the conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King Jr. In 1999, he represented the King family in a wrongful death lawsuit quote, King Family versus Lloyd Jowers and other unknown co-conspirators, unquote. Pepper spent more than four decades compiling the facts he presented in the case. During a trial that lasted four weeks, Pepper produced over 70 witnesses. Jowers, testifying by deposition, stated that James Earl Ray was a scapegoat and not involved in the assassination, and he identified a Memphis police officer as the assassin. On December 8, 1999, the Memphis jury took less than an hour to find in favor of the King family for the requested sum of $100. In addition to finding Jowers responsible, they also found the assassination plot included, quote, governmental agencies, unquote. Amazingly, neither this ruling nor Pepper's research has garnered much attention from the mainstream media which continue to feed us the official line that King was the victim of James Earl Ray, a bitter racist acting on his own to kill King. Here's a simple summary of Pepper's stunning conclusions. King was murdered in a conspiracy instigated by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover that also involved the U.S. military, the Memphis police, and Dixie Mafia crime figures in Memphis, Tennessee, with the shot being fired by a Memphis policeman from the nearby firehouse tower. Pepper strongly believes Ray took the fall for a murder he did not commit. The assassination um, scene. I'd, Go for it, Greg.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna throw in there when you, when you hear the uh combination of uh, those conspirators, the aspect particularly of I think the Dixie Mafia could be of importance and that, that would um that ties together, I would say, at least the past five or six decades of um a large swath of, say, your um Bipartisan, but I think more or less the the bridge almost between like the segregationist days of like Jim Crow, Dixiecrats, and the modern day Democratic Party. So that can have a lot of consequences when you think about various modern day uh, political figures with um, um, backgrounds and upbringings and political rises through the uh, through the Southern United States. And that's also a bridge between other events as well. Um, um, particularly to think about the Clinton family and some of the things in terms of the governorship of Bill Clinton. So there's a lot there. I mean, to just dig through, even by hearing that name alone, Dixie Mafia. So I just want to throw that in there.
1: Yes, very much so. Okay, back to the article. Quote: The assassination scene at approximately five fifty-one p.m. on April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. Reverend Samuel Billy Kyles knocked on the door of room three o six of the Lorraine Motel to let King and the rest of his party know they were running late for a planned dinner at Kyle's home. Just about a minute after King exited his room, a single shot was fired and the bullet ripped through King's jaw and spinal cord, dropping him immediately. The shot appeared to come from across Mulberry Street. King was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead just after 7 p.m., According to the official story, the shot was fired by Ray from the bathroom of a rooming house above a bar called Jim's Grill, which backed onto Mulberry. Setting the Scene Members of the militant black organizing group The Invaders, who were also staying in the motel because of King's visit, were told shortly before the shooting by a member of the motel staff that their rooms would no longer be paid for by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and that they had to leave immediately. When they asked who had given this order, they were told it was Jesse Jackson. Jackson is also identified as the person who called the owners of the Lorraine Motel and demanded that King be moved from a more secure inner courtyard room to an exposed room on the second floor facing the street. The Memphis Police Department usually formed a detail of black officers to protest King when he was in town, but did not this time. Emergency tact TACT support units were pulled back from the Lorraine to the fire station, which overlooked the hotel. Wait, uh, uh, unquote. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether they they say protest king or protect king. I'm not sure which one. It says protest, and I and maybe that's the case, but I'm I'm not sure. I just wanted to point that out. I don't know. All right, back to the article. Quote: Pepper also learned. That only two black members of the Memphis Fire Department had been told the day before the shooting not to report for work the next day. Oh, that the only two black members of the Memphis Fire Department had been told the day before the shooting not to report for work the next day at the fire station. Black Detective Ed Reddit was told an hour before the shooting to stay home because a threat had been made on his life. Ray the Patsy. One thing that many people don't know is that Ray was in prison in 1967, serving a 20-year sentence for a grocery store robbery in 1959. After a couple of unsuccessful escape attempts, Ray succeeded in breaking out of prison on April 23, 1967. According to Pepper, Ray's escape was orchestrated because he had already been chosen as the patsy in the planned assassination of King. The Warden of Missouri State Penitentiary, was paid $25,000 by Russell Atkins Sr., a member of the Dixie Mafia, to allow Ray to escape. The money was delivered to Atkins by Clyde Tolson, J. Edgar Hoover's right-hand man. Unquote. And aside here, of course, remember, Clyde Tolson is the one who has been alleged to have been in a a covert love affair with J. Edgar Hoover too, I believe. So uh, there's that. Back to the article, quote, Ray escaped to Canada, but was convinced to come back to the United States by the mysterious Raul, whom he met in a bar in Canada. Raul convinced Ray he would help him get papers to go overseas if Ray just helped him with running some guns. Ray, following instructions of Raul, arrived in Memphis on April 3, 1968. They met at Jim's Grill, where Ray rented a room. And he handed a deer rifle with a scope that Raul had told him to buy over to Raul. On the day of the shooting, about an hour before the shooting, Ray was given money to go to a movie. When Ray heard the sirens that followed the shooting, he got scared and left the area. He feared he had been set up. Unquote. The, we're going to go in. We're going to go touch into the, this. Actually, this question of Raul and James Earl Ray is a major question of the tie-in between the network that apparently set up the King assassination and and the network that had set up the uh, John Kennedy assassination. But we'll wait to go into that until we finish the article, unless you want to go into it now, Greg. I say we go ahead and uh, just go through this
0: article and then we'll move on to that. Okay, that sounds good. All right, back to
1: the article, the plot to kill Martin Luther King Jr. a conspiracy fact. Quote, conspirator Russell Atkins Sr. A local Dixie Mafia gangster was a conspirator conspirator in the planning of the assassination, although he died before it took place. Much of what Pepper found out about Atkins' involvement came from his son Ron Atkins. In his deposition, contained in Pepper's 2017 book, The Plot to Kill King, Atkins described the many visits made to his father by assistant FBI director Clyde Tolson. Known to Ron as Uncle Clyde, the high-level FBI official often delivered cash to the elder Atkins for tasks he and his associates would carry out on behalf of Hoover. He also recalls driving with his father to the Missouri prison to deliver $25,000 to the warden. Jim's Grill owner, Jowers. Jowers would eventually admit to being a part of the conspiracy to kill King. Getty Spate, a waitress at Jim's Grill and girlfriend of Jowers, says she saw him rush into the back of the grill, through the back door seconds after the shot. White as a ghost and holding a rifle, which he then wrapped in a tablecloth and hid on a shelf under the counter. Spate didn't come forward with this information until the 1990s. She also recounted that Jowers had been delivered a large sum of money right before the assassination. Raúl Purveyors of the official story of the assassination have always claimed that Raúl was an invention of Ray's. Pepper found Raúl and learned his last name was Coelho from a witness, Glenda Brebaugh, who also identified Jack Ruby as someone she had seen with Raúl in 1963. King was still alive. In one of the shocking bits of information revealed in his 2017 book, Pepper says King actually survived the shot and was still alive when he arrived at the St. Joseph's Hospital and that he was killed by a doctor. The hospital story was told to Pepper by a man named names uh, by a man names I think it's named by a man named John Shelby whose mother, Lula Mae Shelby, had been a surgical aide at St. Joseph's that night. Shelby told Pepper the story of how his mother came home the morning after the shooting and shared the story with the family. She described Chief of Surgery Dr. Breen Bland entering the emergency room with two men in suits. Seeing doctors working on King, Bland commanded, quote, stop working on the N-word and let him die. Now all of you get out of here right now. Everybody get out, unquote. Johnton Shelby says his mother described hearing the sound of the three men sucking up saliva into their mouths and then spitting. Lula May said she looked back over her shoulder as she was leaving the room and saw that the breathing tube had been removed from King and that Bland was holding a pillow over his head. Ron Atkins helped confirm this story. Ron, who was 16 at the time of the murder, remembered hearing Breen Bland say to his father, quote, if he's not killed by the shot, just make sure he gets to St. Joseph Hospital and we'll make sure he doesn't leave, unquote. Who fired the shot? Another shocking reveal in The Plot to Kill King is a 2003 deposition from Lenny B. Curtis, who is a custodian at the Memphis Police Department rifle range. Only after his death in 2013 did Pepper reveal what he shared. Curtis identified the shooter as police officer Frank Strausser. Curtis said to Pepper he heard Strausser say four or five months before the assassination that, quote, somebody was going to blow his mother effing brains out, unquote. He also described that Strausser had practiced in the rifle range with a particular rifle that had been brought in four or five days earlier by a member of the fire department. On the day of the assassination, Strausser spent the whole day practicing with it. Why Pepper got involved. Pepper said, like most people, he believed the official story and only went to speak with Ray at the encouragement of Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, who remained unsatisfied with the official account of the shooting. This was a full 10 years after King's murder. He said that after a five-hour interview, he and everyone in the room were convinced Lee didn't murder King. And that he began digging further. How after that, he began digging further. Yes, Ray did plead guilty to the murder, something he quickly recanted. He stuck by his innocence even when asked on his deathbed by Martin Luther King III. King family finds closure. Are we talking crooks and crazies here? believe what you like but quote the king family is happy that they have closure unquote said pepper unquote the end of the of the article
0: wow that's <laughs> i mean there's a there's a lot there and i mean that gets into the um gist of like the uh um direct witnesses in terms of what uh the work that, uh, just the just a small bit of the work that uh, Pepper and the documentation he had compiled over, as I mentioned, four decades plus of, uh, of investigating this. And, I mean, it's <laughs> just even getting down to the levels of people who had worked or um, children of uh, of Dixie Mafia figures and even getting uh, the testimony from the uh, son of the, uh, of the uh, nurse at the hospital. I mean, so that's <laughs> – this is – I mean, the fact that, like – this never, uh, you never, never see the time of day either in the mainstream media or from the supposedly adversarial alternative media. I'm looking at like your Democracy Now! types that constantly, uh, that constantly uh, wax poetic about the legacy of King and. Uh, t- present itself as like the um like the true purveyors of like the legacy of martin Luther king it's very uh it's very striking and very telling and even if all of this even if all of this was was revealed to like not be you know even if like it was all pipe dream or actually crazy kooky conspiracy theory then like the fact if that were the case then you know it's uh it, it, it's not getting covered at the very least and i mean you'll never like you have to dig to deep media outlets like this to even hear these names so Very much a local community paper in Wichita, Kansas. It looks like in this regard,
1: and and uh, I definitely agree with you, like that if the the amount of work that Pepper has done over decades and decades and decades that he has now largely released in the form of the civil suit that he did on behalf of the King family that came to uh, success. And then also, I believe he's a trilogy. I think it's three books he's written on the matter that also includes a lot of his direct evidence, which includes testimony and uh, sworn affidavits. And he he really's gotten to a, a, a bottom the bottom of a lot of this. Now it doesn't mean that he got everywhere, and that's what we're going to touch on on next. But he is uh, apparently also very open to the fact that that he didn't get everywhere with this. But I also want to point out in terms of, in a similar kind of fashion that that you point out, Greg, about the nature of the, quote unquote, alternative media reporting on this or like such as a democracy now, that if you even just try to search this kind of thing on YouTube, for example, the main things you'll find out is interviews with Jesse Jackson at this late date, saying that the FBI was involved in ML in MLK's murder, and so the, the 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 figure of Jackson actually is so it may, is so stunning in terms of all of this, in terms of what the the nature of the evidence that Pepper has put forth, where it's fairly obvious that Jackson is at at an operational core in terms of the closest person to King to be able to maneuver the target into sight that they're still, I've still never seen a direct question. I believe I, as far as I know, I'm, as I'm aware of, I'm the only person in the country who's on video asking Jackson directly to respond to, to the allegations uh, against him. And, and I asked him about that there's members of the African American research community, including Dick Gregory, who have gone over this evidence and have directly accused you as, of being a part of the, of the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And that, that was at Occupy LA when some of the, one of the members of Occupy LA was insistent on bringing King in to speak. Uh, Give him a microphone, really, on the steps of this, the southern steps of uh, Los Angeles City Hall. And I interjected at times during the speech and I was told to shut up. I didn't interrupt it. I interjected and I wouldn't keep yelling and talking, but I would interject certain key facts. He he was so cold. He kept his eyes totally focused forward and did not respond to anything. And and people begin to get on the edge of physical with me. But then afterwards, when we had uh, some cameras and I and I followed him to ask him this direct question about how he responded to the allegations by m- members of the African-American research community about his the facts pointing at his direct involvement in the King assassination. Things got re- that, one of the hairiest moments I've ever felt. And people were pulling on me from all sides. And it began to feel very di- one of the most physically dangerous uh positions i've i've felt in i felt more in danger that evening than i than i was at the kansas city public library uh in in terms of where where it could go or on the day that i was uh dragged out and smashed uh, from the uh, bill maher uh show and there the vibes are really heavy and Jackson has a very strange demeanor, very cold. It felt it felt sociopathic, which was very strange in terms of how the speech he gave was so like he was, you know, he had the the whole like uh, call and response, the 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 Christian preacher, African American Christian preacher, rhetorical flourish down, and it, and and if you didn't know who he was you could sort of buy into it a little bit, but there was no heart there. I didn't feel. So I just wanted to, to I, I didn't, I didn't mean to share all that, but I just wanted to, to uh, point out that, that that piece of this is one of the most jarring aspects, I think publicly because of all the people who have been accused to have been involved in this jackson is still obviously the most public he's still politically involved he's still you know persona grata uh, including in terms of what you're talking about like the democracy nows and places that should have been exposing him i mean this is serious evidence against him
0: yeah no no i'm glad you brought that up because um at the very least like that sounds to me like uh, the types of people who have a vested interest in covering up september 11th and like the you know, some of the deeper elements of it will go on the record and like say, oh, Saudi Arabia was involved. But in this case, in Jesse Jackson, like this case, would be a more direct actual role appears in the facilitating of the events. But I mean it reminds me of that where it's like a where it's like a limited kind of deflection slash uh, misdirection and ultimately not getting called out by that. And for me personally, I'll say it's very frustrating with that aspect as it relates to a Jesse Jackson, because um among people in my family, people who I know who are more inclined to believe uh, certain, I would say, disinformation, Fox News style narratives that are out there, talk radio type narratives out there, they actually believe that like Jesse Jackson is like the voice of, quote, the black community or whatever. When honestly, I think when you really, I think, in a, um, and far be it from me as, you know, as a white man to say this, but I think this would be corroborated, as you say, Jeremy, by some very serious researchers and other people Um that that is not the case but that idea is constantly thrown out there and like this idea when the potentially the uh reality if you take a step back and look that not only is Jesse Jackson not a legitimate valid voice for um but also is actually been involved in um plots and it looks like efforts that have actually um, been among some of the most damaging and destructive um activities to happen to the um not just african-americans but in terms of like the impoverished and the uh, lower class um economically of our entire society and not just in the realm of like you know not being it's, it's worse than just like an insincerity like the way like you know certain like republican type people that will say like oh you know the democratic party is the party of uh of jim crow or whatever modern day slavery or whatever but it's far more sinister than that and it's not just insincerity or ingenuity or policies that are bad for like promoting the um counterproductive for elite interest or whatever but it's going in the realm of like actually potentially having an active complicit role in taking out voices that actually could have been pursuing positive and um more productive, more fruitful, long term results for the community that as I say Jesse Jackson has been elevated as being like a legitimate voice of. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. Yep.
1: All right. And lo- now we're going to move a little bit deeper, actually, because of course, Jesse Jackson would just be a functionary. He didn't organize the thing. He was, it looks apparently like he was just the, selection of the forces who actually organized it into both within this, uh, our country's state apparatus, but others too, as the, the guy who was closest to King uh, to be able to do this. And then also as a potential replacement for King. And that would speak directly to your, your point, Greg, in terms of the way that Jackson is used as a, as a frontman symbol for what is alleged to be the organic leadership of the African-American community. But obviously he's at the very most a low sort of mid low, lower mid-level functionary of some sort in terms of these bigger networks of power. So let's begin to move into some of these other areas. And so it, obviously one of the obvious touch points that was even mentioned in that article that would connect the networks between the MLK assassination and the JFK assassination was when it was said that Raul, this shadowy Raul character, who the quote-unquote debunkers always tried to pretend like had been made up by uh, by the patsy, James Earl Ray, but who actually turned out to be real, that that Raul was with Jack Ruby, a.k.a. Rubenstein, I believe, who was a part of the network of Meyer Lansky's West Coast Lieutenant Mickey Cohen. So now we're talking about the epicenter of the U.S. deep state, because we're talking about Angleton, for sure, who managed the counterintelligence desk and the Israel desk, who's also probably, uh, if not the main touch point of managing the uh, US Central Intelligence Agency's long-term relationship with the uh, gangsters, with the uh, organized crime, all the way back through the uh, during the World War II, and so before the rise of the of the CIA under Truman. And the Meyer Lansky Network also represents the key touchpoint to the Israeli deep state, helping actually having supported the very nascent uh, Israeli state in terms of uh, weapons trafficking and all that. And what we'll find here is that this is actually the, this is where Raul is a a key factual touchpoint Towards understanding this whole network. And so now we're gonna go and read from a a section, it's an addendum section, actually, at the end of a a later edition of Michael Collins Piper's book, Final Judgment, which is about the Kennedy assassination. And so once again, once again, similarly to when we reference things like Veterans Today articles, there's a whole problem here in terms of the, the background of the source material here in terms of this book and Michael Collins Piper and his background with the, with the, uh, the spotlight and the ultimately became, uh, the American free press and the background of Willis Carto and this whole network, there's a whole major issue here. Okay. And it, and it's not only the background there, there's also informational issues here, and we'll point out some of those later on because I actually think that a, a deeper read of Final Judgment is, is worth doing. And we, maybe we won't do it so much today, but there's a very interesting early, uh, earlier part of this book where he has, or C- Collins Piper has some really interesting photos of a lot of the different characters along with real thick descriptions of very key facts related to the entire network and the and the evidence uh, surrounding the Kennedy assassination. But for now we're going to go focus on an, an addendum much later on in the book. And what's interesting is this is he basically it looks like he's put in some questions that he's received from readers over the years maybe and is answering some of those. Okay, and what's immediately Prior to this section, where he addresses the potential links between the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination and the John Fitzgerald Kennedy assassination, is he's actually uh, responding to people talking about the question of that is goes to the core of the question of the the Nazi conspiracy that's been alleged. The the Nazis uh, it's sort of a, a monolithic Nazi did it kind of conspiracy thing too, which obviously touches on people like. May Brussel who by the way was the daughter of the uh of the rabbi at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple which I generation a couple generations later was bar mitzvahed at as a 13-year-old Jewish quote unquote man um so that's I always felt that was a very interesting scenario there but May Brussel also became the source in many ways for decades of Pacifica Network researchers on the politics, including Kennedy assassination, but all the way through 9-11 and such, people such as maybe like John Judge, and people have called them the Brussels sprouts. And what, I've explained this before, but what I n- always noticed was that the, and I had direct a conversation with John Judge when uh, I was in DC for a 9-11 truth activism back in 2000 and uh, maybe seven. I think that might've been, and I saw the way he responded to me directly around the forensics of September 11th and Ground Zero and the World Trade Center specifically and going totally blank and repeating talking points that didn't make sense to me. And that's what I noticed about these, these same networks It looked like in relationship to 9-11 Truth, for example, is that they, there was some kind of blanking out around the basic forensics of the Ground Zero And in September 11th, the ground zero of September 11th is the World Trade Center. And as we pointed out over and over on the antidote, the key figures surrounding that professionally in terms of the actual ownership of the real estate, the transfer of the real estate, the securing of the physical location, the so-called securing of it, we might say, there is, is a v- intensely, specifically, politically, uh, uh, a political uh, super Zionist network, and it's obvious, and it can't be avoided. So once you start dealing with forensics of September 11th, it immediately leads to a intensely Zionist and Israeli partisan network. Now it's it's different with the Kennedy assassination because the forensics are much more diffuse and unknown, and there's not tons of video evidence, and it's not as simple as sort of common sense and and looking at it. But I just wanted to point that out, and so it's interesting that he goes through, he's asked about the gemstone files and the skeleton key, and then he's asked about the, doesn't the mysterious Torbit document that has been widely circulated over the last 25 years contain some valuable information about the JFK assassination? You never mentioned it in Final Judgment, yet this document touches on the permindex connection. And then he responds to it. He said, sure, there's some interesting information in there. And then he says, quote, the Torbit document also seems to have influenced. Oh, for example, no, earlier he says, it has been said that the document came into the hands of Jim Garrison at the time of his investigation of Clay Shaw. And it may have indeed have been part of the reason why at times the Garrison investigation seem to go off in many different directions, one of the most frequent criticisms leveled at garrison by his critics in the establishment media. The Torbett document also seems to have influenced the aforementioned May Brussels, or vice versa. The document also suggests Permindex may have been a quote-unquote Nazi operation, but obviously nothing could be further from the truth and and then ultimately he, he points out that it that it whitewashes the israeli connection and that it was eventually published as nasa nazis and jfk and i have i do have that book and like the questioner says there's interesting information in it it actually it it it, it alerts people to some of the deep uh, it's called disc the defense industrial security something <laughs> Uh, that seems to be uh, an interesting thing to pursue. It has a very Ohio-based location to it. But I believe that uh, I think it's obvious that, that in the general scope of things that Piper is correct in terms of the whitewashing of the Zionist and Israeli uh, network that is most obviously seen via permindex. And I'll just point out again that that the to this day, to just a few weeks ago, when Oliver Stone was on Joe Rogan, and I believe we mentioned this briefly before, that uh, the word Israel was never mentioned. I mean, and it's, and it's not like Oliver Stone hasn't—you know—he was on he was on Bill Maher talking about uh, Israel and the Zionist lobby, and he was on mainstream TV. Yes. He went
0: on. He was on the uh, Tonight Show with Stephen Colbert, where he where he said that I uh, asserted that Israel was in, that there were Israelis involved in the uh, 2016 election, but not Russians. And I mean, like even even Oliver Stone has even made comments that are borderline, in some cases considered to be borderline Hitler revisionism and World War II revisionism. And regardless of what you, where you ultimately stand on that topic, it's not like Oliver Stone's a man who hesitates to say the name Israel. And so it's a pretty pretty telling and pretty amazing that in the context of uh, the kennedy assassination that that, that that doesn't come up and then of course you could trace back to you know the movie jfk and ron Milhan and all that but there's something very very odd there with an oliver stone that like uh is really mentioned it's not like it's not like somebody who just never talks about like the you know the, the Zionist state critically I mean that's uh, definitely Oliver Stone does so it's odd in this case that it's not mentioned.
1: Yeah. And, and even on that Joe Rogan podcast with Stone, Rogan starts, they start going into about how difficult it was for, for Stone to put out his recent film, which was just released actually. And how he, no one would release it. I mean, he talks about how he, they brought it to, I think it was Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival. And there was, a massive, uh, you know, uproar of support for it at the con film festival. And then afterwards he couldn't find a distributor for it until he said, um, uh, what's it called? Um, not HBO, but the other one, the one he always releases Showtime. on Showtime. Showtime. How, yeah. How Showtime stepped up and now they're releasing it, uh, on Showtime and then it'll eventually be made public after that. The obvious question, and this is also, you know, this is part of this, we're not going to go deep into this right now, but we'll just point out that this is related to what's going on with the entirety of this all alternative media sphere right now, including someone like Gre- Gre- Glenn Greenwald, who rightfully got raked over the coal by real leftists and real uh, deep political uh, people uh, on Twitter after saying that, that Oliver Stone suffered some kind of great professional trauma for doing the... Uh, JFK film, and people pointing out that's so ridiculous. He did all these other major films, massive backing, and and so then you would have thought that Rogan could have followed up about, well, how did you get the original JFK produced? That must have been difficult, right? You were taking on the military-industrial complex and the establishment and the media elite at that time, too. That must have been, how did you get that? Executive produce and distributed. That would have led into a very interesting question. Just if in the name, the mention of the name uh, Milchan, Milchan. I mean, that is so telling. It's so so telling. And and I I noted before that, okay, Stone brings up the Daltex building. Now that will be shown to be, I believe, a crucial locus. Uh, of of the Kennedy assassination, but he doesn't follow it through. Permindex is not mentioned, and so I'll just uh, finish reading a little bit from this segment, and then we'll we'll uh, close by reading through the uh, section on the MLK JFK connection. If that's cool, Greg.
0: Well, that's a, not, that's that's great. That sounds great, and I'll just uh, follow up on the Oliver Stone. Uh, Discussion. By the way, it was the uh, tonight, it was the late show, not the tonight show of Stephen Colbert, where that comment was made about Israelis and, and the election. But the last thing I'll say about Oliver Stone is I'll circle back to our part five series of uh, deconstructing JFK based on the uh, James D. Eugenio uh, covert affairs article. It also mentioned in there, there was a footnote that um and, and Oliver Stone had mentioned financing from private interest in the United Kingdom, I believe. So the latest uh thing that he put out on Showtime, if I recall correctly. During the interview with Oliver Stone, during the Joe Rogan interview, but also in this footnote, it mentioned that Oliver Stone was in Cuba for a Latin American conference in 1988. He um, basically was given; he paid 250 thousand dollars for the manuscript of uh, Jim Garrison's book from a one of the founders of uh, covert affairs. And we've talked about we talked about in that five part series the background and the problems potentially with um, the long term covert affairs and. uh, uh, william egg A- is it william Age correct uh e-
1: um you yeah, uh, well, have Phil- philip A- first philip,
0: Phil Philp- Agy, philip Agy, Agy. yeah philip and I think so it's that Agy, it's A? All yeah. very yeah it's all very interesting and i was just going back and thinking about that with in terms of um the longer term aspect of the questions of well why does oliver stone bring up israel and, and zionism and even issues of like you know even borderline like um even borderline like anti-jewish uh Sentiments from a man who himself is, I believe, at least partially Jewish, but not in the context of like the event that has been the his like springboard into alternative media, conspiracy, culture, fame and um, adulation. So I just wanted to bring that back in. And I
1: then I just want to do one brief follow up on that, because the we're not going to go deep into this now, but I do think that some of the the actual forensic problems with someone like Piper. Really do show up in the realm of this Russian prior Soviet sphere blind spots, which really shows itself in relationship to Stone, obviously as you're pointing out, in terms of him going being able to go interview interview Vladimir Putin, and it being distributed also, I think by uh, is it same same uh, what's the name what's the name of that company again, Craig? Talking about are we talking about the network are we talking about Showtime. Yeah, Showtime. I believe that was also distributed by Showtime. The uh, Putin interview. So, but but the the Piper Network, it is I think in some of this realm of the the Russian and prior Soviet sphere where there are these blind spots, and a lot of that I think will come down to the question of Angleton. And now we're gonna we'll put that aside, but but for now, but I do want to explore that at some point, and I just want to point out that in terms of the background of the covert action, uh, quarterly and the, the legend story of the origins of stone acquiring the, um, the garrison document and that being the origins of the film JFK that the Matrokin archives, uh, that are, are very, some of the most extensive of the, uh oh, the soviet files specifically kgb files they do expose that uh, philip ag was working directly with soviet intelligence now it does not say it says actually specifically that the people who who ag was working with to set up a covert action quarterly were not did not know that the that it was being prompted and being supported via ag by Soviet intelligence. So it says that, but you know, so in in that understanding the origins of of stone acquiring the documents that then sort of led into the JFK film ultimately then executive produced by uh, Israeli military intelligence operative Arnon Milchan, specifically Lakam Bureau of Scientific Relations and Nuclear Intelligence operative, but also, as we pointed out before, that the biography of him, of of, uh, Milchan, points out that he was not just the go-to guy internationally for the Israeli state to acquire missing nuclear components, but also NBC, biological and chemical warfare components also. Okay, so that's a very critical figure, not just some kind of international man of mystery kind of thing that they do with Epstein also. But Milchan, crucial figure in terms of uh, highest levels of long-term Israeli uh, national security state. So that's who executive produce uh, Stone's film. But then closing this circle here, that then because of the the fact that AG, you know, I mean, all kinds of things can be said by people who want to, uh, you know, defend the ag in terms of who else was he going to go to if he wanted to expose the the what he be a whistleblower against the cia and all of that but the the base level facts are inescapable that the group out of which the documents were came to oliver stone via this legend story for the jfk film came from a group that is at the very least they they're they're, they're Described as basically the dupes or the useful idiots in the Soviet nomenclature, Soviet intelligence nomenclature of uh, what at that point was a uh, KGB asset agent, really KGB agent Philip Agee. So that has to be dealt with also, and we're not going to deal with it all right now, and we're not going to deal with where the blind spots are in terms of Piper's uh, scenario and all of that right now. But I just wanted to, to point point what all that means in terms of uh, of Oliver Stone and the origins of that. So, all right. Back to the end the end some of the end pages of Final Judgment by Michael Collins Piper. This is on page the bottom of page 674 when he's beginning to answer about this mysterious Torbit document. And people can go look up the, the background of the Torbit document too. It says, quote, there is an even, there's another even more significant error in the document, and I think it's probably deliberate, that essentially has the effect of whitewashing the Israeli connection altogether. In a 1996 edition of the document issued by Adventures Unlimited Press under the title NASA, Nazis, and JFK, the Torbit document on pages 62 through 66 states emphatically that mob money was being laundered through the, quote, Credit Suisse, unquote, bank, and cites Ed Reed's book, The Grim Reapers, as the source for this. Well, first of all, Ed Reed's book does not refer to, quote, unquote, Credit Suisse at all. Instead, Reed's book, pages 130 to 132 in the 1970 Bantam paperback editions, refers to the International Credit Bank, which of course is the English rendering of Mossad figure Tibor Rosenbaum's Bank de Credit International BCI. The fact is that Credit Suisse and BCI were two totally different banks. Neither was a subsidiary of the other, nor does Reed ever suggest as much. However, the Torbit document's misinformation and misstatements of Reed's actual statements has the effect of hiding precisely which bank was the primary funding agency for the permindex group. By directing attention away from Rosenbaum's BCI, the Torbit document is thereby directing attention away from the Israeli connection, all the while trying to find some quote-unquote Nazi connection. I realize that all of these facts will do nothing to convince people such as Ken Thomas and Dave Emery, unquote, aside, Dave Emery is one of these uh, Brussels sprouts on the Pacifica network that I mentioned before, who we've mentioned, we've referred to his work, who does really good work in certain, certain areas, especially like if you want to get to the bottom of these spooked up uh, sort of fake right-wing groups and, and the sort of the Nazi, the actual Nazi connections historically. Dave Emery's one of the best researchers out there, but there is this intense blind spot that is uh, in inevitable uh, to confront if you actually want to get to the a fuller truth of what's going on here. So I just wanted to point that out. Okay, back to the text. We're on page 675 as it's labeled on this PDF book of Final Judgment by Michael Collins Piper. Quote, uh, people, quote, I realize that all these facts will do nothing to convince people such as Ken Thomas and Dave Emery and others that really, that there really was not a Nazi plot behind the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It might make a few honest researchers realize that the Torbett document simply isn't really that reliable, but it gives the hobbyists a horse to rock around on, for sure. I have to say that I was astounded to see that in his 1996 introduction to the Torbett document that Ken Thomas cited Final Judgment in a footnote, when he said that Major Louis Bloomfield's, quote, links to the Meyer Crime Syndicate and his controlling interest in the Permindex Corporation have been the subject of further recent study, unquote. That's all well and good and quite true, but Thomas never once, not once, made any reference to the real point of my examination of Permindex, its Israeli connection. So inasmuch as the original Torbett document did appear around the time of the Garrison investigation, my feeling is that once the investigation was underway and it became apparent that Garrison was touching too closely into Shaw's connections to Permindex, that somebody decided it was time to cook up a quote-unquote mysterious document and give it some circulation and get it into Garrison's hands in order to point him in the wrong direction by mixing up enough real facts with enough nonsense to muddy the waters and confuse Garrison and his and his investigators altogether. We're talking about good, old-fashioned disinformation. The Torbit document has taken on a life of its own. It's appeared on the computer networks. And because it's one of these quote-unquote underground documents, it unfortunately seems to have a greater credibility among some people than things that are more above board. In his book, Called to Serve, Colonel Bo Greitz relies on this document and as a consequence, many of those who have read the book or heard Greitz speak, have had their views shaped by this document of unknown origin. The fact that the document has such widespread devotion continues to amaze and puzzle me at the same time. However, I would urge people to avoid relying on this document. That's one reason why I never once referenced it in the pages of Final Judgment. Okay, on to the next section. The, The quote, the question... Are there any connections between the assassination of Martin Luther King and the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Piper's answer, quote, I want to emphasize that I have not studied the assassination of Dr. King in detail. Those who are interested in the subject should refer to at least the following books. 1. Murder in Memphis by Mark Lane and Dick Gregory. Mark represented Dr. King's accused assassin James Earl Ray in several of his legal battles. And Gregory, like Mark, has investigated both the JFK and King assassinations. Two, Orders to Kill by William Pepper, an attorney who has been representing Ray in recent years. This book and its follow-up, An Act of State, demonstrate that there is much, much more to the King case than meets the eye. And last but far from least, three, James Earl Ray's own book, Who Who Killed Martin Luther King? I had some correspondence with Ray over the years and once had the opportunity to speak with him over a radio show. Ray was quite a writer and his book is absolutely fascinating. It's one of the the most dramatic books I've ever read because it's written in Ray's own words. As far as any connections between the King assassination and the murder of JFK, there do seem to be connections between people tied to Carlos Marcello, the New Orleans Mafia boss, to the King assassination. And needless to say, there are also indications of American intelligence involvement on many, many levels. When one considers the fact that the Israeli Mossad's American conduit, the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, of B'nai B'rith, spied extensively on Dr. King, one cannot help but think that there was intense, covert hostility to Dr. King within the upper ranks of the American Jewish community the ADL was turning its illicitly obtained intelligence on Dr. King over to the FBI. So frankly, much of the hype that we hear about the FBI's persecution of Dr. King is evidence, indeed, of ADL involvement in this scandal. We should not discount the idea that the Israelis, likewise, had a hand in King's assassination in light of the ADL's complicity in waging war against the black leader.
0: And I think that this would be the... um... This would be the ADL via the FBI, and it's compromised, um, likely to some of the things you alluded to earlier involving J. Hoover and Clyde Tolson, uh, likely compromising of Hoover. And ultimately, I think that's where this would be shaped at, would be the FBI or the ADL perhaps influencing um, FBI and a compromised FBI to target uh, King to this level. I don't think that's simplistic, but I think it's a big part of that. And that is a that is an aspect that would be put into like the you, know, you hear a lot about the FBI and the uh, federal, um, you know, investigating and spying on King, but that is a important aspect of it. And then that would get into, like, whole mopped up elements of, say, the Hoover FBI. So, I mean, there's a lot there, but I think that is a major part of the uh, King spying that probably isn't talked about as much as um, other aspects of it are.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that the, it looks to me like the the King and the JFK assassination There was the, especially in terms of relating to what we described around the uh, our five-part series on the Kennedy assassination, that there were real high-level what could be conceived of as national security concerns, both around King and around Kennedy, that were not just about the uh, the ADL and the Israeli uh, interests, and that King and part part of what Part of what Pepper proved out, actually, in his uh, conspiracy theory of the case, and that would some of which he proved out in court, and then also shows in his books, that is that the reason that high-level U.S. military intelligence was involved in it was that they that that the highest levels of the U.S. government were concerned that King was going to. As King began to uh, organize a Poor People's March, basically uh, in earlier generations, Occupy D.C., really, and he, as he was connecting the question of uh, economic justice at home to, uh, to justice abroad, an anti-war connection in terms of the Vietnam War— and was planning to uh, lead people to set up a permanent occupation in D.C. until the war monies were restored to the American uh, people and specifically African-American communities and inner cities, that the highest levels of the U.S. national security state were concerned that it had the potential of a a revolutionary moment and a very destabilizing uh, moment. And so I, I think that it was, it not, it's not quite, I think is as, as simple as that they, this is the way that they had, uh, uh, Hoover compromise. I think Hoover was probably interested in doing this also actually maybe more than, than the question of, uh, any involvement in the Kennedy assassination, but that's just my, that's just my, uh, sense of it. Because Kennedy was not really so much of a – he wasn't perceived so much as a, a threat at home, whereas King was directly perceived as an immediate potential threat in relationship to a, a potential uprising American people a moment that because Hoover was FBI and responsible for the you know head of domestic security – he was intensely concerned about that too, and then I, I, I think that there was a uh, an a all- lot an allegiance of interests or a uh, 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 you know interest had become uh, co- coalesced in terms of this. And the key thing here is that what's usually left out with King is why the Zionist network and the Israelis specifically would be so concerned about him and task the ADL. To to spy on him and s- then supply that evidence to the to the uh, that s- surveillance to the FBI, and it's because in a similar kind of way where Malcolm X, whose uh, whose assassination also recently has been proven out in a mainstream fashion to have been a high level conspiracy, too, that they were moving in certain directions in in and in really international directions that threatened. The Israeli state, and we've read from uh, Malcolm X's document, uh, Zionist logic, a very, very damning, quick piece of rhetorical uh, flourish from Malcolm X. At the same, I think at the, about the same time that his his uh, his connect deeper connection with his the source of his uh, his uh, Muslim faith beyond the nation of Islam and sort of contained within. What we see, I think, as a potentially some kind of contained operation in relationship to the nation of Islam in the United States, he broke free in a way that began to become internationally politically relevant and in a way where he's speaking out directly against Zionist power and the uh, Israeli security state. And uh, and then King was also beginning to move towards questions of taking on not just civil rights at home, but the war in Vietnam, and also making moves towards Palestinian solidarity. That would have been a massive blow to the uh, Israeli security state.
0: Very very good point. And um, <laughs> it's interesting his predecessor, his successor, quote unquote, Jesse Jackson, who would uh, go out and make. Provocative statements, calling New York City "Heimy Town" and things like that. I don't, I don't think Jackson's ever made any um, notable um, statements profound on behalf of like the Palestinian people and that whole that uh, that whole. So that's that's interesting. And then also one more thing. I don't mean to like absolve like Edgar Hoover of like any or the FBI of any motivations. It's just I think that there is an ADL aspect that probably isn't looked at as much. And then also on the topic of Malcolm X was also around the time I believe that uh. Malcolm um, was um, starting to understand like the pro like the the problems with to uh, say, like, uh, 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 Elijah Muhammad's organization starting to uh, work with um, American Nazis, your cake um, combination of the like, KKK interests and in also, I think, like actual American Nazis, George Lincoln Rockwell milieu, and that would have a lot of consequences for the bigger, I think, um, obvious like domestic. Um, attention strategy attention that i think is employed by adl um, organization and a lot of its uh satellites it has been going on i believe for the we believe for the better part of a century so
1: great point and it's a great point too about jackson about how he plays with sort of jew baiting rhetoric over the years as did as did al what's his name right <laughs> right greg
0: This sort of, al, al sharpton yes uh, you are just a bunch of White interlopers and diamond merchants. That was at the time of the uh, Crown Heights uh, 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 situation in New York in the early '90s. So, you what you see. I mean,
1: we've we've talked about before that our we have a structural hypothesis that that King taken out and Jackson replaces him. Malcolm X taken out and Farrakhan replaces him. And what we notice is it's not quite as obvious with Farrakhan because Farrakhan actually does engage in some amount of. More sort of core political speech surrounding things like uh, Israeli politics, Palestine, and all of the, this kind of thing a little bit a little bit more than maybe Jesse Jackson does. Although Jackson does a little bit too. But what they both do is they play they've played at times, and obviously Farrakhan more with the r- rhetoric that is easily can be accurately described as Jew baiting, at, rather than core political speech around things like Zionist power. And, and specifically around issues surrounding state power and Israeli politics, for example, and the Israeli security state. And so those begin to be marks, I think, of our hypothesis being potentially correct in terms of these more, you know, these leaders which who be, were becoming real threats to some of these powers, being replaced by people who sort of go through the motions, and uh and uh, and while also dabbling in the kind of rhetoric that it, it can easily be pointed to by the ADL types themselves uh to uh, say and and uh, dirty up the the entire intellectual endeavor really that that would involve calling out the ADL themselves as a as a uh political force and so i, I think we both noted that so I, so thank you for uh uh, pointing that out, Craig.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I guess there's one more thing I'd add is that uh, Jesse Jackson is the more "quote unquote" mainstream, and Farrakhan is more of like the "quote unquote" fringe figure. So that probably explains like Jesse Jackson, or to an extent, Jesse Jackson, more or less dabbling and um, dabbling in rhetorical what could be considered you know anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish sentiments, and then Farrakhan just being more, um, more just out there like
1: open about it. so <laughs> Yeah. Okay, here we go. Back to the book Final Judgment by Michael Collins Piper. We're towards the bottom of page 676. Quote, King was most assuredly not a victim of a Ku Klux Klan or quote, hate group conspiracy. Unquote. And aside here, you know, maybe go look into the background of the Ku Klux Klan and the the uh, what what we talked about in terms of the Bene Brith and those roots and how that even seems to have tied into the assassination of Lincoln and all of that and the construction of the the post uh, Civil War South uh networks of power and and all of that. So that that's a, I just wanted to point that out. And and there's there's aspects too of that potentially this would be part of the problems of the networks that have backed Piper's work sometimes too, is that they would not uh, get into some of that deeper stuff potentially. Some might, but I just want to point that out. Okay, quote, he was a victim of an establishment conspiracy and probably for the very reason that he was rocking the establishment's boat. King, along with another black leader, Malcolm X, also slain like King under mysterious circumstances, threatened to bring the black community out from under the heel of powerful forces within the establishment who preferred to keep blacks under control, in the slave pen, so to speak. There are more than a few who suspected suspected organized crime, too, may have played a role in the King assassination conspiracy for the criminal underworld best personified by international mob kingpin, Meyer Lansky was making billions off the black community through drugs, gambling, prostitution, labor racketeering, and other money-making enterprises. King's push for black self-assertion was a threat to Lansky and his cronies, as well as to their partners in crime in the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Central Intelligence Agency. Both entities we now know have been rife with mob-influenced corruption. What's more, King's growing respect among 3rd third-world leaders was a distinct threat to the CIA's international intrigues. In fact, much of the allegations that King and certain third-world leaders, black and white alike, were quote-unquote communists or under the influence of communism came right out of the propaganda propaganda mills of the FBI and the CIA. Unquote. And aside here, too, it also, and I believe it's it's from the Matrokin archives also, that the accusations of King the communist also appeared to come out of the Soviet KGB mill. Additionally, all right. So there's something a little bit more complicated here going on than uh, someone like Piper is uh, able to admit.
0: And this is all while, like anything, King and the ostensible um, communist conspiracy behind civil rights was portrayed as a soviet plot so i mean it's yeah something something way more going on here and it's uh and it's um it's there's a lot there's a lot to that to say the least but i mean this is all while that was the whole gist of like the anti-communist movement. or a major part of it was the civil rights movement and martin Luther king as its front man was a direct major plank of the uh soviet communist um plot to take over america and take over the world basically so or take you know domestic speaking domestically speaking the united states okay
1: now we are back to the final judgment page 677 top of the page quote all of this needs to be kept in mind by those who are inclined to take a negative view of martin luther king you can indeed judge a man by his enemies I would add, though, that I have, in fact, discovered some interesting items in William Pepper's books that do suggest, perhaps, that there is some sort of Israeli connection, or at the least, that there are some leads that haven't uh, haven't been followed through, which do point, again, to an Israeli connection of some sort or another. I will say up front that I realize that this statement is going to cause a lot of people to say, quote, Oh, come on now, Piper's not satisfied with finding an Israeli connection to the JFK assassination. Now he's trying to link the Israelis to the King assassination, unquote. But bear with me, hear me out. First of all, as we already noted in the chapter on Jack Ruby, William Pepper has noted in his book, An Act of State, connections between Jack Ruby and James Earl Ray's ubiquitous handler, quote unquote, Raoul to a Mossad-linked arm-smuggling operation that was active at the time of the JFK assassination. So that's a Mossad connection anyway you cut it. In his first book, Orders to Kill, on page 435, William Pepper describes his inquiries into the background of Canadian Eric S. Galt, whose identity James Earl Ray adopted during part of his wide-ranging travels. Here's what Pepper reports. Quote, I learned that Galt, who, as we know, was the executive warehouse operator at Union Carbide's factory in Toronto, had top-secret uh, security clearance. The warehouse he ran housed an extremely top-secret munitions project funded by the CIA, the U.S. Naval Surface Weapons Center, and the Army Electronics Research and Development Command. The work involved the production and storage of quote-unquote proximity fuses used in surface-to-air missiles, Artillery shells, and LAWs. The company was engaged in high security research projects controlled by the U.S. parent. Union Carbides Nuclear Division ran the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Unquote. Don't forget, incidentally, in, re- in reference to the nuclear programs at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, that according to Dick Russell in The Man Who Knew Too Much, writing on page 361, that on July 26, 1963, someone, someone signed, quote, Lee H. Oswald, USSR, Dallas Road, Dallas, Texas, unquote, into the register at the Atomic Energy Museum in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. However, according to Russell, the FBI later determined that this was not Oswald's signature. So I ask, is that a connection between the JFK assassination and the King assassination, or isn't it? In August 1967, reports Pepper, Galt was, quote, "...cooperating with another 902 military intelligence group operation that involved the theft of some of these proximity fuses and their covert delivery to Israel," unquote. According to Pepper, he obtained, quote, "...a confidential memorandum issued by the 902nd MIG on 17 October 1967." which confirms and discusses this operation, Project MEXPO, which was defined as a, quote, military material exploitation project of the scientific and technical division s and in Israel, unquote. So there it is. Somehow James Earl Ray was steered into the use of the identity of a real-life individual who did indeed have ties to Israel and its, quote, scientific and technical, unquote, research. Which, of course, points in the direction of nuclear development. Note, likewise, that the real life Galt was linked to the, quote, scientific and technical division, unquote, in Israel, and note also that Galt's company was indeed linked to Union Carbide's nuclear division. Thus, we again find not only an Israeli connection to the King assassination, however fleeting, but also an Israeli nuclear connection. And that, of course, is very interesting in light of what we know about JFK's conflict with Israel over nuclear weapons development. And believe it or not, there's even a, quote, French connection, unquote, again involving the Israelis that Pepper describes. Pepper reports on page 234 that he met with Pierre Marion, the former head of the French SDECE, to seek out French assistance in uncovering information about the King assassination. According to Pepper... "Marion insisted on intense secrecy. He agreed to tap his sources in French and Israeli intelligence. At one point, he said to me, quote, "You are in great danger." Unquote. Upon this basis, Pepper concluded that the French officer had concluded that some part of the U.S intelligence community had been involved in the King assassination. Although Pepper apparently never considered the possibility instead that perhaps French and Israeli intelligence in fact had some connection to the assassination, which of course is precisely the case with the JFK assassination. In any event, according to Pepper, quote, sometime afterward, France went through a turbulent change of government. Marion's inside sources became very nervous about discussing anything sensitive. His, His Israeli sources claimed to have no information, unquote. Frankly, I continue to be amazed that people who otherwise buy the theory that while Israeli intelligence, quote, is the best informed in the world, unquote, as so many defenders and friends of Israel say, they actually believe the Israeli claim that they have, quote, no information, unquote. Frankly, Pepper might have gotten more information about the King assassination if he would have asked his friends in French intelligence to ask their friends in Israeli intelligence to ask their agents in the Anti-Defamation League To turn over their files on Dr. King to Pepper If the ADL was so ready to provide information on Dr. King And other civil rights leaders to the FBI So why can't they do the same for Pepper? In any case, this is a question that Pepper needs to answer I am not researching the assassination of Dr. King Pepper is So if Pepper is interested in following these leads Especially considering the context of the Israeli nuclear connection I say, more power to him but don't count on him to follow up on this matter. It should be noted that in his book, Who Killed Martin Luther King?, Ray addresses his, his suspicion that his mysterious handler, Raoul quote-unquote Raul, may have been traveling in the company of a figure that Ray believes may have been financier, David Graver. Ray mentions Graver's involvement in the looting of the American Bank and Trust Company, ABT, of New York but does not mention something that he most assuredly also knew. The fact that ABT was the restructured Swiss-Israel trade bank originally funded by Mossad figure Tibor Rosenbaum. Having done his own research, and as a regular reader of The Spotlight, the newspaper by which I am employed, Ray knew that the looting of ABT by Graver was determined to have been a classic mob-style quote-unquote bust-out in which the funds stolen from ABT were used to finance Israel's secret secret nuclear arms program. In fact, if truth be told, according to sources such as J. Orlin Grabe, Grabe, G-R-A-B-B-E, and others, many of the savings and loans debacles of the 1980s were, in fact, covert operations designed to provide looted funds to Israel's nuclear and national defense programs. Unquote. Uh, that's that's very uh, interesting, too, because then you would you would then have to start looking at the question of the Milken network. Of course, you might have to look at someone like uh, Meshulam Rickless as w- what the, as the godfather in many ways of some of these uh, these uh, kinds of financial setups. Uh, and so that would be very interesting to see uh, looking back here. I'd, I had never heard that, though, Um about the savings and loan debacles of the 1980s were in fact covert operations designed to provide looted funds to Israel's nuclear and national defense programs. Uh, that There's something in my gut. That seems uh, interesting and potentially correct. So that would be an interesting place to delve into, I think. All right, I'm going to keep going here. Now we're on page 679 of Final Judgment. Quote, while the New York-based Shapolsky- Publishers, an affiliate of the Israeli based Stymatsky Company, issued the well researched The Mafia, CIA, and George Bush by Pete Bruton, which pointed out CIA connections to the SNL debacles. The book did not delineate Mossad connections thereto. In any event, that's a subject for others to pursue, but it is interesting in light of Ray's having linked David Graver to the Martin Luther King assassination conspiracy. It is also a matter of record but seldom mentioned by researchers looking into the King assassination that prior to the King assassination, James Earl Ray had been given two numbers by quote-unquote Raoul that Raoul indicated Ray might contact if necessary. One of the numbers in New Orleans, Ray definitely remembered to end with the numbers 8757 and vaguely remembered to begin with 866, but he wasn't certain. In fact, Ray later determined on his own the New Year's the New Orleans number 866-3757 during the relevant time was the number of the Le- Leventhal Marine Supply Company and Ray stated in his little-mentioned self-written early appeal of his conviction that, quote, the resident listed in New Orleans was, among other things, an agent of a Mideast organization distressed because of King's reported forthcoming before his death Public support of the Palestinian Arab cause. unquote. It is no speculation to suggest the organization Ray was referring to was the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai Brith. Unquote. We 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 covered some of the uh, a bunch of this material from a separate article actually that was published by I believe by Piper or about this this uh, some of this Piper stuff and uh, that question of the. Connection of Raul and these numbers to back to uh, to uh, New Orleans ADL. Uh, I remember us uh, dealing with, but I'd forgot I'd forgotten the, the centrality of that uh, interesting link. Okay. Back to the page bottom of page six seventy nine of Final Judgment. Quote later when Ray testified before the House Assassinations Committee. He referred again to this mystery number and commented, quote, I don't want to get into this libel area again and say something that might be embarrassing to disservice some group or organizations. He, King, intended, like Vietnam, to support the Arab cause, someone in his organization making contact with the Palestinians for an alliance, unquote. Again, Ray was obviously talking about King taking a stand that would upset the ADL although he was talking around the subject without stating it directly. On his website, assassination researcher A.J. Webberman, who has been associated with the pro-Israel Jewish Defense League, which is effectively an, quote, armed wing of the ADL, has suggested that this reflected Ray's, quote, hatred for the Jews, unquote, in Webberman's words. But Webberman concluded that Ray, quote, blamed the Mossad, unquote, for King's assassination a fact that very few assassination researchers seem to be aware of. Ray was certainly reticent to talk about it, knowing full well that he had enough on his hands to start making accusations about the Mossad. But the fact that he did make these allegations is something that must be part of the record. Weberman himself went to efforts to discredit Ray's findings, saying that he, Weberman, determined that another... 3757 number in the New Orleans area began with beginning with 833 rather than the 866 that Ray vaguely re- remembered was traceable to a motel where New Orleans mafia boss Carlos Marcello maintained an office. However, Ray did not remember 833 as the number. He remembered, however, vaguely the number
0: 866.
1: However, the motel number,
0: Greg, um, I was just going to say I was uh, – I just briefly looked at this uh, A.J. Weberman, who's referenced here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, A.J. Weberman, um, this is just an excerpt from uh, – might get a little bit of an idea of like the type of circles this person runs in. Um, there's an – um, in his Wikipedia profile, are there other activities in 2002, Weberman, along with the Jewish Defense Organization and JDO chief Mordecai Levy, were successfully sued for libel in Brooklyn, New York. The jury stated that Weberman was responsible for $300,000 of the $850,000 judgment. And the link in the uh, Wikipedia profile um, takes you to an article from the Weekly Standard in uh, 2000, published in um, published in. September 16, thousand and two, the hunting of Stephen J. Hatfield. Why are so many people eager to believe that this man is the anthrax killer? So it's interesting that a uh, JDL pops up with um Piper. Probably, you know, I could see correct um asserting that uh there's a uh Weberman in the anti defamation league. So and Yeah, I, I
1: believe like in in the um maybe it's in the the photo section that we were looking at before, Greg, that Piper Points out that that Weberman wrote a, a key thing in relationship to the Kennedy assassination, and and that Pearl, I believe, was someone who was Richard Pearl was, was someone who was spreading the gospel of it. I I believe. I think I think that so Piper was saying that there looks like there's a, even a deep connection between uh, Richard Pearl and uh, and Weberman, but I can't remember exactly what that is. But we'll, we maybe we'll return to that at some point.
0: It's. That's very interesting. And just without, um, you know, not knowing more details about it, it sounds like on the surface just a classic example of like building up like this um, myth of like the Soviet communists killed Kennedy or whatever. But I mean, it sounds like it might be on that, but that's very interesting. Also, Richard Pearl potentially being somebody else who uh, goes back to a long term Soviet Russian uh, nest of some type.
1: It's interesting. The. um the, the this i'm back in this section now of the uh, the photo section and looking through it again and he points out that people such as Barry Seal were uh, was actually a um had worked for Ferry who who's a key figure in the uh Kennedy conspiracy operation but that he actually that that piper actually says that Barry Seal himself was a uh a pilot for a getaway pilot in the uh, Kennedy assassination, and I'm looking for the the picture I'm thinking of right now. But b- by the way, as I go by these, we'll just go over a few of these. He's pointing out a picture of uh, two key Warren Commission staff members: Arlen Specter and Albert Jenner. Arlen Specter, I believe, is the uh, the original source of the pushing of the magic bullet theory. One of my one of my regrets. Is when I when I was in DC with We Are Change LA and we were distributing the the uh, forensics information on the World Trade Center demolition and I and I gave it to Spectre, I I did not confront him about his role in the Kennedy assassination cover up. But this Albert Jenner guy, uh but he well um Piper points out that like most of the key Warren Commission staffers, both Spectre and Jenner had close ties to the Israeli lobby. Specter, now a U.S. senator, when he wrote this, from Pennsylvania, is a leading congressional champion of Israel, where his American-born sister has taken up residence. Jenner, prior to serving on the Warren Commission, was attorney for Chicago billionaire Henry Crown, who is not only linked to the Lansky Crime Syndicate, but whose vast financial empire also helped bankroll Israel's nuclear weapons development program, which was a thorn in the side of President Kennedy and the source of JFK's secret conflict with Israel. And also remember, going back to, we actually, one of the the times that we, I believe we talked about the uh, RFK assassination, we went over the uh, Crown family connection to the people who had owned the ambassador hotel where uh, RFK was assassinated. And of course, the Crown family also, I believe, are the the godfathers of the Aspen Institute, additionally. Oh, and here's, here's another. Right above that is a interesting...
0: Uh,
1: is this okay if we just go through a, a few of these for the time being, Greg? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. What, what
0: page are we on? on? What, what page are we on in the PDF? Page 396.
1: Okay. And there's a picture of Max Fisher on the left with an inlay of Gerald Ford and then on the right, we we both recognize the picture of Max Fisher on the left, but on the right is a man who we've never seen a picture of, but we talked about almost as much as almost anybody actually on the antidote is the uh, Israeli billionaire Shaul Eisenberg on the right here. So I just want to read this paragraph. This is a very interesting paragraph uh, description of this uh, photo by by Piper that de- that deserves a little bit more exploration. I'd say. Quote At the time of the Warren Commission inquiry into the JFK assassination, Detroit industrialist Max Fisher left was a close advisor and chief financial backer of then Congressman Gerald Ford, inset left, one of the commission's most dedicated defenders. Fisher not only had long standing ties to the Lansky Crime Syndicate, but he was also a business partner of Mossad officer Rabbi Tibor Rosenbaum and Israeli billionaire Shaul Ra- Eisenberg, right. Who were prime movers behind the permindex web that was central to the JFK assassination conspiracy? Okay, and aside here, remember that Shaul Eisenberg appears to be at the epicenter also of the, the sort of more covert business intelligence network behind the long-term planning for the September 11th operation too, Okay. So very interesting. And I either didn't know or had forgotten that that show Eisenberg was uh, was a business uh, was a part. was a prime mover behind Permindex uh, in terms of the JFK assassination. Permindex is the key corporate uh, structure that sort of holds a lot of the ties uh, of the uh, Kennedy Assassi- assassination network together. And I'm going to continue on here. Quote, Eisenberg, the Mossad's longtime liaison with Red China, was a key player in the highly secretive joint nuclear bomb development programs between Israel and Red China. President Kennedy's plan to launch a military strike on Red China's nuclear bomb production facilities was reversed by Lyndon Johnson within 30 days of the JFK assassination, with the result that the Chinese effort went forward. Evidence suggests that China's first explosion of a nuclear device was, in fact, a joint venture between Israel and Red China.
0: Um, if that's the case, I don't think we've ran into that elsewhere, correct? No, no. This is, if this is the case, I mean, obviously, we could argue about like the, you know, the moral um, or whatever uh, consequences or motivations of bombing uh, nuclear facilities. Of course, as we've seen that happen. Um, infamously with Israel and Iraq in, uh, in 1981. And there's other other incidences of that as well. But this is the case and this is true here. I mean, you consider the long term Israel China relationships we've talked about in our series, um, reading from uh, Seeds of Fire and other documents that this would fit in line with um, if there is like some term of like long term collaboration in terms of nuclear efforts. And I mean, I think this is very crucial from a uh, geopolitical and uh, foreign policy perspective in terms of uh, what that would mean and then also if this is the case what the question that comes to my mind is who would have a vested interest in um, perhaps uh, enabling this um, making sure that this continues to go on and be perpetuated it would seem to me to be a combination of these interests that uh, might over time want to have like this kind of alliance, so to speak, with uh, China, fitting into what we've identified more recently perhaps as aspects of multipolarity or a shift to the east, which would go on in time with Israel and China and also Russia, but then also, I think, continue to give the the hawks that can, in many cases, maybe controlled opposition hawks, so to speak, the continued ammunition to use of building up the threat of China to the point to where it has uh, reached this uh, peak level of, in terms of height now. And so i I think that perhaps a move in the direction of, uh, of any type of effort maybe to escalate or to um, stop the perpetuation of, uh, of a nuclear weapons push is very consequential, especially if this is the case that there was a partnership in this regard. And that brings another potential angle to uh, maybe look into or find out more about with regards to this assassination.
1: This it is very interesting that I've never heard that before about the plans of of Kennedy to uh, preemptively bomb a Chinese nuclear uh, nuclear site that was then reversed. That is very interesting because it, in terms of his foreign policy, as we pointed out, he's not he's not he's neither a hawk nor a dove in terms of the quote unquote Cold War. He saw an actual way out of the Cold War is what it looks like. However, in a lot of this, it looks like Kennedy was a hawk on nuclear proliferation. The nuclear nonproliferation uh, agreement was passed, I believe, under Kennedy. It was cru- it was, it was, that's crucial timing, actually, uh, in terms of the Cold War to, to prevent a further escalation, although it, of course, escalated in crazy dimensions. I think that was the – maybe that was the test ban treaty actually that was done under Kennedy, which is interesting too because the – I can't remember which one it was, the non-proliferation treaty or the test ban treaty. I'm sorry. I can't remember.
0: Um, The test ban treaty, partial test ban treaty – was signed by the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union on August 5th, 1963. After Senate approval, the treaty that went into effect on October 10th, 1963, banned nuclear weapons testing in the atmosphere, in outer space, and underwater. I'm just going to make one aside to this, um, is that you think about U.S., Great Britain, Soviet Union, well, Kennedy, we've talked about uh, Khrushchev and like what we might think might have been going on with uh, Khrushchev. being we removed the year of Kennedy, but also, interestingly enough, um friend uh, john brisson had alerted me to um the profumo affair which was a scandal which actually brought down the british government of then prime minister harold macmillan so i'm just thinking about the three of these here is that uh united states great britain and soviet union i believe within perhaps a short time period of this um test ban treaty among other things as you think about the kennedy khrushchev relationship there's also a um, basically, a change of power in the United Kingdom as well. So, I just wanted to throw it in there. It might be something to follow up on more in the future, as I'm admittedly not um, well versed in this. But I just thought of that reading that about the partial nuclear test ban treaty.
1: Yes, and the what what is at the epicenter of Piper's hypothesis? The in terms of the Israeli core, uh, what he describes as the Israeli core of the. Kennedy assassination conspiracy is all about the Kennedy being a hawk against the Israeli nuke, not a hawk against Israeli security. He still wanted to, to maintain U.S. Uh, protection of, of Israel, an umbrella in relationship to the Cold War. and But he was severely against the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so this is very interesting then to hear that he was going to uh, attempt to preempt the Chinese nuclear program Uh, that that, I find that very, very interesting, actually. And and so there's a deeper history here about the about the the forces that sought to actually proliferate nuclear technology, nuclear, both both energy technology, but also nuclear weapons technology. And there's a very strange moment there, I think, in the 30s uh, surrounding Caltech of of this sort of secret Soviet cell that included uh, a a Caltech professor, but also um, um, Oppenheimer's brother, I think was part of it, but also the father of the Chinese uh, rocket program was part of this cell, but also the um, Frank Molina, I think his name was, is the father of, I believe, Christine Maxwell's a husband, one of the Talpiot twin, Maxwell's husband, was part of this crew. Uh, Jack Par Jack Parsons, the father, uh, with some of you know, like someone like Melina, uh, uh, as the I think they were called the Suicide Squad or the Suicide Boys or something like that. Part part of the founding of the JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and so the. The conjunction there of all these key figures in terms of—and by the way, there's a whole history of Jack Parsons, actually, apparently looking like he eventually became some kind of Israeli agent and 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 getting papers, nuclear p- papers, potentially, definitely what, uh, rocket papers out of, I believe it was Hughes, I think, in Southern California, and then bringing them—having been caught at some point— but. Having then work, gone to work in Israel in terms of their early rocket programs, so you can really see a very interesting early background there, of a group that ultimately ended up proliferating nuclear rocket technology. I think you'd have to you'd have to say that, and I I to sort of see this potentially organizing principle in relationship to Kennedy as an anti-nuclear proliferation hawk at some level, I think it helps explain a a, a good bit more in terms of some of his motivations and also some of the motivations of people uh, against him. So, all right, let's, I want to read a couple more panels from this early uh, sections of, earlier section of Final Judgment, where he has all these very interesting photos and I did I found the what I was thinking of in terms of Weberman and Pearl. So I'm gonna read this uh, page panel. I'm on page three eighty-nine, Greg. Okay. Quote former CIA officer Victor Marchetti or Marchetti left alleged in an article in the spotlight in nineteen seventy-eight that the CIA planned to frame CIA operative E. Howard Hunt Center for involvement in JFK's murder. Evidence indicates CIA. Israel's CIA ally, James Angleton, was behind the scheme to frame Hunt. Angleton's confidant, journalist Joe Trento, Wright, believes Angleton sent Hunt to Dallas in November of 1963 and then 15 years later leaked a CIA memo placing Hunt in Dallas at the time of the assassination. Hunt was working with many of those involved in the assassination and knows far more than he will admit. Hunt seems to have been part of what some thought was a quote-unquote dummy assassination attempt on JFK designed to implicate, agent, implicate J- agents of Castro, but which was co-opted and turned into the quote-unquote real thing. It is likely Lee Oswald was manipulated in this fa- fashion, led to believe he was involved in his scheme to blame Castro for an attempt on JFK's life, when in fact he was being set up as the quote-unquote patsy. And then underneath it, a picture of a um, a letter from purportedly written by Lee uh, Oswald to Mr. Hunt. And then on the right, the, uh, the front of a book titled Coup d'Etat in America with an inset of Richard Pearl's face there. Quote, although CIA-connected British writer Christopher Andrew asserts the famous letter to quote, Dear Mr. Hunt unquote, left, purportedly written by Lee Oswald two weeks before the JFK assassination was a KGB forgery, this letter was more likely part of the quote, unquote, limited hangout campaign by James Angleton's Mossad desk at the CIA to frame Hunt and confuse JFK research further. The letter came to light at precisely the time in 1975, that Mike Canfield and Alan Webberman were releasing coup d'etat in America, right, which promoted the myth Hunt was one of the quote-unquote tramps picked up in Dallas after the assassination. Not only has Webberman been closely associated with Mordecai Levy, a known operative for the Mossad-linked Anti-Defamation League, but Webberman has revealed that the Capitol Hill power broker who played an early instrumental role facilitating Weberman's effort to spread the, quote, hunt-as-tramp, unquote, theory, was Richard Pearl, inset right, a longtime Mossad asset who is now a key player in the, quote-unquote, neoconservative pro-Israel network. In addition, the Nigerian who published Weberman's book was also publisher of Israeli leader David Ben-Gurion's writings. Final Judgment author Michael Collins Piper speculates Weberman's book was quote, black propaganda, unquote, out of Angleton's Israeli desk at the CIA. Interestingly, it was Weberman who revealed that New Orleans district attorney Jim Garrison was quietly suggesting Mossad involvement in the JFK assassination, a point even many Garrison admirers are hesitant to acknowledge. And then going back down here,
0: Oh, by the way, would those Garrison admirers include the aforementioned uh, Oliver Stone? <laughs> uh, I would I would think so. I would
1: think so. Okay, let's let's read this one. Okay. Page 395. The fingerprints of Israel's wealthy patron, Lansky syndicate figure Sam Bronfman of Canada, left, are found all over the JFK assassination conspiracy. Not only was Bronfman's longtime henchman, Louis Bloomfield, chairman of the Mossad-sponsored Permindex Corporation, but new evidence indicates that Dallas mob figure, Jack Ruby, was actually on the Bronfman payroll. In addition, while another Bronfman associate in Dallas, oilman Jack Critchton, functioned as a quote-unquote translator for Lee Harvey Oswald's widow after the JFK assassination, another Bronfman functionary, quote-unquote super lawyer John McCloy, center, served on the Warren Commission. McCloy was a director, and Crichton served as vice president of the Empire Trust, a financial combine controlled in part by the Bronfman family. Although Bronfman is best known for his Seagram's Liquor Empire, What many JFK researchers who point their fingers at the, quote, Texas oil barons, unquote, have failed to note is that Bronfman was a Texas oil baron himself, having purchased Texas Pacific oil in 1963. As far back as 1949, Alan Dulles, Wright, later the CIA director fired by JFK and also a Warren Commission member, served as an attorney involved in the private business ventures of Bronfman's daughter, Phyllis.
0: Wow, uh, very interesting. I had identified an interview with uh, John McCloy, who was like this, um, basically, I think, like maybe one of the Rockefellers, like primary, perhaps frontmen or associates who had a lot of uh, involvement in a lot of uh, major um, global organizations. Um, and an interview where McCloy had been convinced, claimed to Walter Cronkite that he had been convinced by his fellow Warren, Warren uh, Commission member and old friend, Alan Dulles, that his his skepticism about the uh, narrative of uh, lone gunmen were were soothed away or were basically put to rest by Dulles taking him to show him the death, the scene of the assassination and all that so it's interesting that we've got another uh, another John McCloy connection here and also it's interesting the topic of the Bronfman Texas oil interest being brought up I think that needs to be looked into and evaluated further as well although I could see a scenario where perhaps maybe a Maybe there's an attempt to maybe take the heat for whatever reason. This is speculation off of like the action, like the very you know well-known uh, oil interest in Texas, of say the Hunt family, for example. I don't know that, but uh, simultaneously, I could see perhaps to uh, take the heat off the Texas oil barons that have had a lot of complicity in um, financing of major organizations, Council for National Policy, et cetera, and then also um, involved in. Uh, economic machinations. So I sense that that could be a double-edged sword there, maybe take the heat off, but also there's a lot of things that need to be looked into with regards to the Bronfman's in Texas. So very interesting all around there.
1: Yes, very much so. And also, as we pointed out before, that the quote-unquote military-industrial complex, which is the the perpetrator most named by people like Rogan and Oliver Stone when they had their last thing, that was the thing they kept military-industrial complex, military-industrial Complex. We pointed out before that one of the key military and in, industrial uh, complex contractors, General Dynamics, is also a connection to this other network in relationship to uh, to uh, the Kennedy assassination. Because I believe that's also then the the Crown family. Okay, so that's interesting too. So the, so it's interesting to see an, the Bronfman connection to the Texas oil baron uh, set. And then also the uh, crown family connection to the military industrial complex. And actually the people who have drawn out some of the the Vietnam war uh, motivations and the difference between NSM 263 or NSAM 263 uh, ordered by Kennedy to begin the withdrawal from Vietnam versus the post assassination NSAM 273 ordered by then President Johnson began sort of denying that and sort of resetting back in motion the the, the further escalation of the Vietnam War uh, is that there, and remember, Johnson supposedly had said, I can't stop the war. My friends are making too much money, he said. And I have seen some analysis that, there, that actually general dynamics specific interests in terms of a specific fighter plane was uh, was of 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 big interest at at the exact political moment of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, so there there is that too. And one other thing here in terms of the uh, Bromfman lawyer connections, one has to mention the apparent Alex Jones connection to the Bromfman lawyers in uh, in, uh, in a Texas context. That has to be mentioned, I would say. So, and I want to finish reading this page and then we'll go back and just finish up. I think that we had just a tiny bit left of the uh, section on the, the Piper linking the MLK and JFK. But quote, within minutes of the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald on November 24th, 1963 by Jack Ruby, Eugene, um, b- by the way, there's another part of this too, where, where, uh, Piper points out that Ruby, when he showed up at the time, I believe it, that the exact, that exact time when he went and assassinated Oswald, that Ruby was saying that he was there to translate on behalf of Israeli journalists. And now we're not going to be able to get into this during this recording, but there's this whole other arc in terms of the uh, Photographic evidence combined with a whole bunch of contextual data that points at a whole bunch of really high level Israeli operators at the scene of the crime. Now, it is apparently um, an out in the open. It was actually official business, I believe, that the eventual prime minister assassinated Israeli prime minister Yitzhak Rabin was there on a military briefing trip was in Dallas that day and then left at some point, uh, from the exact same, uh, loves field, I think where the, uh, Kennedy, um, uh, the Kennedy, um, group had, had started from, but then there's, and we'll just mention this right now because we're not going to go into it, but we just want to mention it, that there is a, a crew of, uh, of actors there who eventually played certain other roles. Now, one that really looks for sure to me is Michael Harari. And uh, Harari is a, a, an interesting character who I pointed out, too, has allegedly, allegedly admitted to being an orchestrator of 9-11 the day of. But I just want to just mention the name of, uh, of another character, and we're going to deal with this one i think probably maybe soon greg but based on the jfklie.com who this writer puts at the epicenter of the cia operational sort of the connector between someone like dulles and angleton at the top levels of the of central intelligence to the actual operation how do you actually pull the thing off he claim he asserts that what he makes sense to him is a man named Stuart Bolton, who's the father, by the way, of Josh Bolton, and was seen as the highest uh, uh, level uh, Jewish American in the CIA at that time, I believe, and for different reasons, given. This author says that that it it makes sense in terms of hiring Israelis to actually do the the, the assassination job, and he he asserts that Mike Harari was uh, and Yitzhak Hofi, both of whom eventually became heads of Mossad at different time, they became walkie-talkie man and umbrella man respectively he also then in a a little bit more hypothetically but uh, in terms of not as the the photographic evidence is not quite as clear i don't think the the photographic evidence is pretty clear to me in terms of the photograph of what looks lo- looks exactly like harari and hofi and what's interesting is piper seems to confuse Har- Ho- Ho- piper goes into a whole thing about harari being the potential umbrella man and when both Greg and I, we looked at it, it actually looks like it's the opposite, that that Harari is what's called walkie-talkie man, and Yitzhak Hofi is the umbrella man. But then this author, I can't remember his name, he then says that there, there, another assassin might be Ehud Barak. And that there's a babushka, a babushka lady who's been identified in the photograph surrounding the Kennedy assassination. And, and this author points out that Ehud Barak would have been, you know, sort of young, 21, but still, you know, fully engaged in uh, Israeli military uh, operations by that point in his life. And Ehud Barak, it's overtly, it's openly known that Ehud Barak dressed up as a woman Uh, With uh, with the brunette hair, at some point, to do a Mossad operation. So this is a very interesting, and this is the most specific hypothesis that I've heard of specifically which Israelis were involved, and so that's quite a crew there. If this is is the case, and it makes sense, this guy's hypothesis makes sense to me that if you're if you're uh, you know a high level operator in the Central Intelligence that's looking to make sure that this thing happens goes off correctly, you're going to not only shop it out to a, uh, you know, a a, a quote unquote functional ally who has a track record of uh, serious covert operations. But then at that point, you're also going to shop it out to their, their highest level operative, their most, their most effective operatives. And so then the presence of all of these individuals as key Israeli operatives over the years is, is very, very interesting. So I just wanted to bring that in at this point uh, uh, in terms of um, what we will maybe get into a little bit more at another time. All right. Back to finishing up with final judgment for now. We are on page 395 of the photograph section. Quote, within minutes of the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald on November 24, 1963, by Jack Ruby, Eugene Rostow, then dean of the Yale Law School, began lobbying President Johnson for the establishment of what became the Warren Commission that covered up the truth about the JFK assassination. Rostow's pivotal role in the affair remained a secret until 1993. A longtime high-level figure in the Israeli lobby Rostow was a board member of the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, JINSA, I remember Pearl, right, too, which has been described as being, quote, run by individuals closely identified with Israeli interests and may be regarded as a virtual lobbying organization for the state of Israel, unquote. A fanatic hardline cold warrior, Rostow was a founder of the, quote, unquote, neoconservative Committee on the Present Danger, which deemed Israel's security to be central to all U.S. foreign policy concerns.
0: And um, on that note, I think we talked a little bit, we may have talked a little bit about this during our Deconstructing JFK series. I'm not positive, I can't remember, but uh, Eugene Rostow's brother, Walt Rostow, was the national security advisor to Johnson during the last three years of his presidency from 1966 until he left office in January of 1969. So...
1: All right. All right, now we're back to page 680 of Final Judgment by Michael Collins Piper. And we will uh, finish up and and leave it there. Quote, however, the motel number had been called by David. Remember, this is talking about the numbers, the New Orleans numbers that James Earl Ray was, uh, was remembering. Quote, however, the motel number had been called by David Ferry linked to the circumstances surrounding the JFK assassination, so that does indeed make, at the very least, an unusual connection between the two assassinations that seems to have gone largely unnoticed. And in light of the Mossad connections to the JFK assassination, which did swirl around the activities of David Ferry, Guy Bannister, and Clay Shaw in New Orleans, it does suggest yet another, quote, Mossad link, unquote, to the Martin Luther King affair. We do know that the King family has been under heavy media attack for having dared to come to the defense of James Earl Ray, and this in itself is unusual, considering the previous favorable coverage of that family. We need not rehash the extensive influence of the Israeli lobby on the American media, but in the context of the information outlined here regarding possible Israeli connections to the King assassination— we might logically conclude that these media attacks on the King family may relate to precisely that. Unquote. And Greg, doesn't that remind you of what, that other picture that we'd seen earlier about the guy who'd asked them uh, what's his name at a farmer market, farmer's market? About the um, uh, Piper uh, hypothesis? What's his name? The, uh, the big, uh, you know, who everyone watched in America for the news.
0: Oh, Walter Cronkite. Yeah,
1: Walter Cronkite. And then maybe we'll just finish out with, uh, with Walter Cronkite in terms of this. That was a very interesting, um, there's a lot of this actually in this book. And that's why I think we, we should do some deeper dives maybe, um, in this book. Wait, I can't find where that is, Greg. Do you remember where that was?
0: Um, let's go back to the some one of the picture pages. So I'll we'll go back yeah. up to those. Um, we'll find it here. Just give us a moment here. Oh, I'll throw in while I'm looking for that. There's one more footnote uh, I think is uh, while I'm looking for Cronkite. Um, there's one more footnote that's very interesting, and it's right underneath the where we talked about. Um, we discussed the. Uh, oh i'm sorry and we discussed the richard pearl um and uh government is um and this is interesting because it's kind of a bridge i think between the traditional new world order conspiracy theories uh world government and this type of um these type of connections and that was a uh, prince Bernhard of the netherlands who is uh known as the founder of the bilderberg group and somebody who um i think long t- uh alex jones favorite during his lifetime and longtime uh, fellow right at the journalist at this, the uh i'm sorry at the spotlight a uh, big jim tucker was a bit familiar with and it mentions uh it's Bernhard's um uh dealings with uh tybor tibor rosenbaum and so i thought that was an interesting bridge between like your traditional new world order conspiracy theories and this type of um this type of research so but uh anyway the cronkite um i'm looking here through these pictures sorry about this um, oh here
1: it is i found i found it um, and then and then but and then there's one last little panel that I want to read that has to do with, uh, again with Harari and Raul, which uh, I want to reemphasize in terms of finishing up today. And um, I think both of us are running out of power on our phones and stuff, so we should sort of finish this up, Greg. But page 418 of Final Judgment has a picture of uh, famed Israeli journalist Barry Chamish on the left. And then Walter Cronkite on the right. And by the way, remember, Barry Chamish is the the only place I can find in English that really quotes from some of the sources surrounding the accusations by highly credible uh, Israeli uh, Soviet uh, refugees uh, pointing the finger at Natan Sharansky as a potential long-term Soviet mole or Soviet police agent of some sort and it's only in Barry Chamish's uh, uh book references to it that I can find any english reference other than the, the reference to the court case where um sued for for uh, successfully was able to sue for for libel. All right. All right, so quote, famed israeli journalist Barry Chamish left recently wrote the final judgment quote makes a pretty cogent case for the Mossad being the moving force behind the assassination of JFK, unquote. A self-described, quote-unquote, Zionist who says he is, quote, committed to the strength and survival of Israel, Chamish accepts Final Judgment's contention that the Permindex Corporation was a Mossad front for covert operations and that it is plausible that Israeli Prime Minister Ben-Gurion would have lent Mossad expertise to the plot to kill, to the, to kill JFK, as a result of Ben Gurion's dissatisfaction with JFK's opposition to Israel's nuclear aims, earlier on August 31st, 1996, Ray Kalanikis, a reader of Final Judgment, encountered famed CBS broadcaster Walter Cronkite right at the farmers market in West Tisbury on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, but was where was a uh, Alan Dershowitz? This is pre Alan Dershowitz being shunned on Martha's Vineyard, but. <laughs> And aside on that, okay, quote, Kalinikis outlined the thesis of final judgment to Cronkite, who listened intently. Then looking out to sea, Cronkite remarked succinctly, quote, I can't think of any group, with the exception of Israeli intelligence, that would have been able to keep the JFK assassination conspiracy under wraps for so long. Unquote. And I'm going up to this last picture that I was uh, that I wanted to uh, read from, which is a picture of. Um, and by the way, he does. He has a picture of Oliver Stone, and next to in uh, uh, another picture of Arnon Milchan. That's very interesting. All right, here. Let, let me read that. I got to read that one now, Greg. I got to read that. I'm sorry. Okay,
0: here we go. <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
1: When all oh, we're already deep into this. Okay, when Oliver Stone left, crafted his hit film JFK. Focused on Jim Garrison's investigation of Mossad-connected Clay Shaw, Stone suppressed evidence of the so-called, quote, French connection, unquote, which was, in fact, the Israeli connection, perhaps because his chief financial backer was veteran Mossad asset Arnon Milchan Wright. By the way, it was not Mossad. It was military intelligence. Um, it is just a point. Sometimes people use shorthand Mossad, but I really think it's important for us to begin to understand the differences between these different intelligence units and all that. Maybe in this case, it's not that important. Probably not, but okay. Quote, the veteran Mossad asset, Arnon Milchan. And in fact, probably Milchan is a, a Mossad asset, whereas he actually was a LACOM, a lockcom agent. Um, Arnon Milchan, right? Israel's biggest arms dealer and a major figure in Israel's nuclear arms program. After Garrison's death, Garrison's family brought legal action against Milchan's enterprises because the family did not receive all of the proceeds their father was promised when Stone bought the rights to Garrison's memoir. Whoa! Okay, and then finally on this page, Destiny Betrayed. Quote, Although James D. Eugenio's Destiny Betrayed left is a fine, fact-filled examination of Jim Garrison's investigation of Clay Shaw, De Eugenio, who has publicly scoffed at final judgment, has been careful not to explore the multiple Mossad links of the Permindex Corporation on whose board Shaw served. Di Eugenio's book was published by the Sheridan Square Press, whose founders received financing from the Stern family of New Orleans, who were also contributors to the Mossad intelligence arm, the Anti-Defamation League, ADL. Close friends of Clay Shaw, the Stearns were owners of the WDSU media empire, which played a central role in Shaw's sheep-dipping of Lee Oswald as a pro-Castro agitator prior to the JFK assassination. Although we now know Garrison recognized Mossad's involvement in the JFK affair, he, perhaps wisely, voiced his suspicions only in an unpublished novel a fact many choose to ignore.
0: <laughs> Very interesting altogether. Um, you know, we talked about the issues with D. Eugenio avoiding the topic of Israel and the Kennedy assassination in um, our five part series based on his article on um, deconstructing JFK. But um, it's interesting that, once again, uh, it's a mind to me that, like, as you said before, like, nobody probably has put all of the answers together, so to speak. And uh, it's interesting, I mean, between Piper and the Spotlight and American Free Press and Willis Carto and all that. And, um, uh, Di Eugenio appears to be closely, relatively closely connected with the whole aforementioned uh, covert affairs. Bill milieu. Um, really interesting one embraces full, full bore almost like I guess the Israeli aspect of it, while perhaps running cover unknowingly for um, the Russian Soviet elements and. Intrigue, And then I guess Diagenio, who I guess, according to Piper, has publicly scoffed at his findings at putting Israel at the center of the Kennedy assassination, also through covert affairs likely being in a very uh, Russian-centric and deep history of agi-compromised milieu. So I found that to be an interesting observation. Yes, okay,
1: and finally, a photo on page 400. Shown above is a photo taken in Dealey Plaza immediately after the JFK assassination. At right is the famous, well-dressed, quote-unquote, Umbrella Man, widely believed to have played a part in the assassination. Although one Louis Stephen Witt later claimed he was the, quote, Umbrella Man, many JFK researchers dispute his claim. Although the, quote-unquote, Umbrella Man's companion is often said to be, quote, Latin-looking, unquote, A veteran of Middle East travel told Final Judgment author Michael Collins Piper that the individual instead has the appearance of a typical Sephardic Yemenite Jew. In fact, the, quote, umbrella man, unquote, may be famed Mossad assassination specialist Michael Harari, see below, who was in the field in 1963. William Pepper, attorney for Martin Luther King's alleged assassin, James Earl Ray, has linked Ray's handler, Raoul, along with Jack Ruby, to a U.S.-based arms smuggling operation, which in 1963 included a top Mossad officer who was almost certainly Harari, and then there's the picture of of uh, of Harari, and then he uh, Piper puts a uh, one picture of Harari, and then this sort of uh, very blurry photo of this guy on the right, rather than the guy who's described as having the appearance of a. Um, a Sephardic Yemenite Jew on the left who I believe is known as Walkie Talkie Man and then claims that the guy on the right looks like uh, Harari. But he does not look like Harari. It doesn't th- look like um, to, to me. And in fact, if you, uh, at the JFKLie.com, the hit team, this, he says, quote, this is my attempt to put a specific name to some members of the assassination team. This is conjecture. Walkie Talkie Man was my Harari, umbrella man was Yitzhak Hofi. Both were up-and-comers in Israel's power structure. Both later served as head of Mossad. And when you actually look at the picture of uh, Harari that he has, it looks very much like the uh, the facial uh, shape of the uh, walkie-talkie guy on the left. And in fact, the the hair and the angle of the face of the umbrella man, the well-dressed umbrella man on the right, sitting right next to the guy who really has a very similar facial structure to Harari on the left, does look like like a young, um, like it very well could be a young Yitzhak Hofi. Um, and so there's a lot there. And then he has a picture later on with, here they are together years later with a picture of uh, of Harari and Hofi um, with their sort of spook wear on, their glasses and everything. And, uh, and by the way, this guy also suspects that Zapruder... Was potentially part of it, and so when we touch back into this, we will touch back into the whole thing that opens up with Zapruder. Not only him being a, a you know a thirty third degree Scottish Rite Free basin involved with the local powerful Jewish community in in Dallas, but also the the uh, the location of his office in the Daltex building and the owners of the ba- the Daltex building and then one last thing here is that this uh, author has a picture of the um the uh, pergola which i believe is up near the what's known as the the grassy the grassy knoll i believe that's the case here and sh- shows what is a looks to be a picture of Abraham Zapruder and his assistant, Marilyn Sitzman. And uh, there looks to be a blue marking next to these posts where they're walking close to in uh, the pergola on the, on the um, grassy knoll. And, and this author points out it looks like that the Israeli team may use the color blue as an indicator, uh, uh, an operational indicator for each other it looks like. Uh, So I just wanted to uh, bring that in there to a, and uh, helpfully bring this to a close, hopefully. What do you think, Greg? Do you have any other final additional points?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think this is a good time to bring it to an end.
1: All right. Well, thank you all so much for hanging in there with us and, and pushing through our, our Martin Luther King Jr. day. Um, in honor, uh, deep dive analysis of the, uh, connections between the MLK and the JFK uh, assassination. And we will pick up from sort of close to where we ended up, uh, in a, a soon to follow show. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. We appreciate you until next time. Antidote, we are out. Thank you.